Uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis uh, chapter 1 this morning as we get into God's Word uh, today. And again, uh, I think uh, Pastor Mark mentioned that we are having uh, service tonight at 6, and so I uh, hope to find you out here tonight worshiping with us. We're going to have a wonderful time uh, learning about prayer tonight and praying in the name above every name, praying in the name of Jesus. So I hope you'll join us tonight for our 6 p.m. service. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at chapters 1, some verses from chapters 1, and then some verses uh, from chapter 2. Just a little bit of of background, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, and we're glad that you are. Uh, But I'm sure as you are well aware that our culture calls this month Pride Month, uh, has taken this, you know, month of June and designated it uh, to celebrate what God calls in his word and deems sinful. And everywhere we look, uh, this month especially, we see uh, put on display these uh, demonstrations celebrating uh, what really is brokenness. And we at Destiny have also taken this month to speak about um, what God's word would teach us about these things. Um, what, every, every acronym on the LGBTQ plus uh, banner, God calls sinful. And we need to understand why that is and uh, understand God's purpose and plan for our lives. And that includes our sexuality. Now again, I want to underscore that at Destiny Church and my, me, myself personally, I do not hate anybody. I endeavor to obey the teaching of Christ and to love everyone. I don't harbor hate in my heart towards anyone, no matter what uh, lifestyle you would choose for yourself. However, my love for everyone would compel anyone to abandon sin. Yeah. That, that love demands that I do not affirm anyone in their sin because I love you and I wouldn't want anybody to engage in anything that is harmful and and sin and all sin and particularly sexual sin is very harmful to us as image bearers of God we're not I can't I can't go off on that Um, but my heart for everyone is that we would have the freedom that Christ came to bring us and that he would set us free from sin. And so I will say, if you missed last Sunday or the previous Sunday, uh, today's message, it builds on the foundation that we've been laying. And so I would strongly encourage you to go on our website or YouTube and listen to them. But just briefly, in week one of this, ser- this series, we established that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, he is Lord of all, of all people, of all places. He, he is Lord. And therefore, his word is above everybody else's word. His word is above everybody else's opinion. His word is above every other therapist, every other scientist, every other so-called doctor. His word is supreme. Because he died and rose again, and he rules and reigns over all people, places, and times. So that was week one. We established the lordship of Christ Last week, we looked at what Christ taught specifically about marriage and sexuality. And that is that it is between one man and one woman, and it's designed to be a covenant for life, and that sex is only to be expressed within that marriage covenant. Now today, uh, we're looking at the goodness of God expressed in marriage. That in marriage, that this gift that God has given to humanity, we see God's goodness. And so I want to, this morning in our time together, hold up for all of us the supreme beauty of God's design for marriage. It's sometimes said that we as Christians, maybe you've heard this before, that we as Christians are known more for what we are against than what we are for. Have you ever heard that? Well, this morning I want to talk about what we're for. 
I want to hold that up for you from the Word of God. And I want to make a case for everyone this morning that what we are for is good and why God created this for us, why what God created is far better than any counterfeit that the world would offer. And so that's uh, what I'm endeavoring to do this morning. So Genesis chapter 1 Uh, We're going to bounce around here a little bit in Genesis 1 and 2, but let's start in the beginning. Genesis uh, 1 and 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's go now to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, that's mankind, humanity, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now skipping down to verse 31. This is the conclusion of that creation account. God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. It was very good. Now, that that creation account in Genesis 1 is the the big picture, the broad strokes of God working in creation. As we get into chapter 2, it gives us more details, putting on that zoom, that telephoto lens, of the sixth day of God creating man and woman. And so chapter 1 is that big picture. Chapter 2 is zooming in on the sixth day. And let's look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Verse 18, Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found for him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he formed or made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These are the words of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us to see what you call good and very good. Help us to see why what you have created is beautiful and it is glorious and it is your design. 
Lord, help us as we study your word to recognize that there has been a systematic attempt and a systematic uh, attack on your kingship, on your lordship over all creation. Lord, where we in our thinking have, have, have believed the lies of the enemy, the lies of the serpent, the deceiver, Lord, I pray that your word would wash over our minds and that you would set us free today from the lies of the enemy. Lord, we know that you came to bring freedom, to set people free who were bound in sin. Lord, I pray that your word would do your work today of freedom. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, first, I have to start with, again, in chapter 1. And what I'm about to say, I say often, but I do say it often because it is so absolutely fundamental and we live in a world that has put together a, a multi-century propaganda campaign against this truth. And that is simply this, that we were created, not evolved. We were created by God. We did not evolve from goop. That is who we are. And again, this is so fundamental to everything about life. We were created by God. We were made by God in His image. Designed to have fellowship with God. To have relationship with God. To know God. To be able to hear His word and to receive His word. And to, to live in His world. Obeying His word. In fellowship with our Creator. We, we do not live in a purposeless, causeless universe. We, we do not live in a universe that just exploded from nothing one day and billions of years later, here we are. That is not true. The truth is that God is the creator of everyone and everything. And that he spoke the worlds into existence. The idea that something comes from nothing, it, it makes no sense. It is completely irrational. It is completely illogical. We do not come from nothing. We come from God and are accountable to God. But if you believe that there is no cause to the universe, no ultimate purpose, no God above us, if you have adopted the, the theme song of this generation, which is, was set forth by John Lennon, imagine, imagine that song that he wrote, which is one of the most anti-Christ songs ever written, Imagine there's no heaven, John Lennon taught us. It's easy if you try. It's actually kind of hard to imagine that there is no God. But anyway, no hell below us. Imagine, he says, that above us is only sky. What a, what a sad, sorry, purposeless excuse for living. Because if above us is only sky, then truly nothing matters. If there's no hell below us, no heaven above us, there's no judgment in front of us, there's no God who rules over us. And without God, everything, truly everything, is meaningless. There's no purpose behind anything. If there's no God, you're no better than the dust of the earth. If there's no God, you're, you're just a, a monkey that hit the genetic lottery. I say it often, from the goo, through the zoo, to you. That there is no purpose to your life if there is no God. The atheist will say, but we are the ones who give things meaning. We, uh, we impart meaning to things and then therefore make them meaningful. That there is meaning in life because we give life meaning. But if we're only dust in a purposeless, causeless universe, if we're just fizzing chemicals, there's no ultimate reality to anything, how in the world does dust give meaning to anything? How in the world do we as dust cause something to be meaningful? No, in fact, this is the atheist's attempt to make themselves God, that we are the ones that impart the meaning that we want instead of God who created all things. 
So this is the first thing that you've got to come to terms with. And that's why it's on the very first page of God's revelation to us. Because if you don't get this, you're not going to get anything else in this book. If you can't figure this out, that there is a God, that, that, that we don't live in a random, purposeless, causeless universe, that creation itself is the proof for the existence of God, that the height of futility, the height of foolishness, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. If you don't understand that humans, mankind is made in the very image of God to show forth his glory, then you don't even understand what it means to be human. And how can people who don't even understand what it means to be human propose, give forth, uh, articulate a, a, a course of action for anything? Why am I going to listen to, as an image bearer of God, someone who doesn't even know what it means to be human, tell me how I ought to live in order and structure my life? No, instead I turn to God's word. So the goodness of God in marriage. The goodness of God expressed in marriage. I'm teaching on marriage today and I know that some of you will say, well, I'm not married. So there's nothing in here for me. Or I was married, but I'm, now I'm divorced or I'm widowed. I want you to know that this is for you as well. If you have kids or if you have grandkids, you need to be able to share with them the wisdom of God's word on marriage. If you have friends who would confide in you, you need to be able to share with them and, and point them to God's wisdom on marriage instead of your own best ideas or what you read in Cosmopolitan magazine. That we can actually give to, to people around us sound godly advice. Not whatever just pops into our head. Now, again, as we look at Genesis 1 and, and 2, we have to realize and recognize that what comes after this is, I know this is going to sound shocking, is Genesis chapter 3. Which is when sin entered the world. And so we're looking at, in, in the portrait God gives us for marriage, and I'm so thankful that he did it this way, is he gave us a portrait of marriage before sin entered the world, before brokenness entered the world. And so as I present these five things to you of the, the goodness of God in marriage, you, you will recognize, and some of you will say, this is so idealistic. We don't live in that world anymore, and that is true, but I'm going to address that concern at the end today. So the goodness of God in marriage, the first that we see is companionship. This is God expressing his goodness to mankind by giving us the gift of marriage. And the first we see is this issue, this gift of companionship. As we read the end of chapter 1... God looks at everything and he says, it is very good. Behold, everything he made is, is very good. As you read the constant refrain of, of chapter 1, at the end of every day, God says, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good. And when he looks at everything that he made, he says, it is very good. But as you drill down and you look at uh, the, that sixth day, in verse 18, on that day, God looked around and he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The first hint, the first glimmer we get of something not being good in God's world is a man being alone. Proverbs 18.22 says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor or blessing from the Lord. Now when I say it is not good that a man should be alone, I should get an amen from every man in this place. <laughs> amen. There is, there is hardly anything 
not anything worse in creation than a man who's alone. And in this, we get the deep sense of the deep need that we all have, both man and woman, for companionship. And we see this in verse 23 after, after God brings Eve to Adam. And I don't know if you know this, but do you ever wonder why is it that in Christian marriage that the father walks the bride down to the man? It's because every Christian marriage is meant to show forth the first marriage in which God the father walks down Eve, the first bride to the first husband, Adam. Every marriage is a picture of this marriage. Every marriage ceremony. And so here we see God walking Eve, bringing Eve to Adam. And Adam says this, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We, we get a deep, we get a sense of the deep need for companionship that we all have when Adam says the words, at last. He's only been alive for like less than a day. He hasn't even, he doesn't even, he hasn't even seen his first sunset. And when Eve comes walking in, he says, at last, at last, I have a companion. At last, I have a mate. This, this is a deep-seated need that we all have. And marriage is God's gift to that need being met in mankind. Marriage and companionship is getting to build a life together with your best friend. Your spouse is supposed to be your best friend, your closest companion, your confidant. Marriage is, is having that friend that is there with you through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. Marriage is having somebody that you can sneak off with from your kids and go hide in the bathroom and eat chocolate with and, and not share it with any of them. Mar marriage is, is that. It's that companionship, that friendship. Marriage is having someone to laugh with so you're not crying when you look at just this is just nuts you have someone to to laugh with you have someone to cry with it's not good to be alone the second thing that we see the goodness of God in marriage is God says it's not good for man to be alone I will make him a helper the second thing that we see that is God's goodness towards us is in marriage we find help. In marriage we find help. If, if Adam was going to fulfill his God-given purpose of filling and subduing the earth, he's going to need some help. And in fact, he's going to need a lot of help. We need help. There's this ancient Christian saying that says the woman was made not out of Adam's head to rule him, nor out of his feet to be trampled under him, but out of his side to be cared for by him, near to his heart to be loved by him, and under his arm to be protected by him. We both need help, both the man and the woman. We need help in life. For the woman in marriage, she finds love, affection, protection, provision, financial security, a stable environment to have and to raise children. For a man in life, in, in, in help that he finds he finds a life partner who respects him, 
And in this crazy dog-eat-dog world, we have someone in our wives that we know is for us 100%. Who is unquestionably trustworthy and loyal. In a wife, we find someone who makes life beautiful. Who makes life beautiful. That's what women do. They make life beautiful. You see, a man can build a house, but it takes a wife to turn that house into a home, into a place of refuge. A man can provide a seed, but a wife takes that seed and gives back to the man a son or a daughter. A woman is showered with love, but she gives back in marriage her very self, her body, and her soul. As a man, as a husband, I feel that I get way more out of this deal than my wife. But I think if we asked every wife who was a part of a godly marriage, she would say the same thing. I think both men and women who are a part of a godly marriage that they feel this way, that they are getting way more out of the deal than they're putting in. And that is the beauty of God's design. We find a helper to help us do what we cannot do on our own. Number three, he says, I will make him a helper who is fit for him. This word fit, it means that it is is someone like him. It's someone similar to him of his same, of his same uh, human race. But he is not this, this helper that she is not the same as him. Someone like him from the same human race, but not the same as him. And there is a way in which a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, there is a way in which they fit together That a man and a man and a woman and a woman simply cannot replicate. It's it's like a left hand and a right hand. They are in some sense the same. They're both hands. They're they're both similar. But they're they're different. They're they're not identical. They're, They're not exactly the same. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't want them to be the same. I wouldn't want to have two right hands. And in a sense, man and woman are meant to, to mirror one another. And they're made to fit together. And just as it is with our hands, one is typically more dominant, one is typically stronger. One typically takes the lead, but I don't look at my left hand and say, because I'm right-handed, I don't look at it and say, this is worthless. I don't need this. This is purposeless. No, and in fact, it is fulfilling God's design. So he makes a helper fit for him. Now, I want to say that when I was growing up in, in the church, There was a teaching that went around and it spread through the youth groups that I was a part of that was stupid. I'll just call it that. I know some of you parents teach your kids not to say that. And in our house, half half of our parents teach our kids not to say that. But it was it was just stupid. In youth group, they taught me and everybody else. And I love, I, I thank God for our youth pastors. We had wonderful youth pastors. But they taught, they, I, and I, you know what? I don't, maybe I heard this at a camp. I'll just say it that way. I heard this at a camp from some youth pastor that wasn't my youth pastor here. Okay, <laughs> off at some camp. All right. From some youth leader from some other church that didn't know nothing. All right. But I was taught that God has one person for you there's only one person on planet earth 
created just for you. And if you can find that one person, you guys will be a perfect match together. And I'm just sitting there thinking, there's 8 billion people on the planet. How in the world am I supposed to find the one person that I'm just going to click with? And it's just going to be heaven on earth because I, I found that one in eight billion person. That is, you know, that's not a biblical idea at all. At all. At all. In fact, the biblical idea is that we covenant together with our spouse and that God fits us together through our marriage vows and our commitment to him and to each other. And that through life, the two become one flesh. But it's not in some sort of, you know, mystical, I'm going to find the right person that God made for me. You know where that idea comes from? That's paganism. That's Hollywood. That's, that's, that's Disney. That, that's not God's design. God's design is that we would marry and that we would make covenant vows to one another and God blesses that. And through time, we grow together to love one another more than we ever did in the beginning. I love my wife today more than the day I said I do. That's God's plan. That's God's desire. I didn't even know what love is when I said I do. I had, to, I had to get married to learn what love was. And Heather's sitting there thinking, he's still figuring it out. <laughs> so, but the idea that you have to find the right person and if you find the right person, you'll have a great marriage. No, the, great, the key to have a great marriage is having the right, the, the third party, the right person, the person of Christ in the mix. That's the key. If, if you want to have a good person, a good marriage, you do have to find the right person. But that person is Jesus. That person is Jesus. It, it's just so dumb. Why? Because we, we don't, nobody is static. So say you find the right person. Well, guess what? In five years, they're going to be a different person. Amen. I'm not the person. I was talking to Heather about this this week as I was thinking through these things. I'm not the same person she married. And she's sitting over there thinking, thank God. I'm not the same person that she married. And she's not the same person that I married. We grow and we grow together. Amen. If you think you're going to find the right person and that you two are just going to stay static, I mean, it's just, it's dumb. And that's why there's just so much, and, and even Christians fall into this mindset, well, the reason my marriage isn't working is because I married the wrong person. No, no, that's, that's the world talking. That's the lies of the enemy talking. If, if there's trouble in the marriage, sometimes it's just, man, troubling times. Sometimes it's just external things that are happening that you have to work through. Hard times. Some, sometimes it's, it's that there's one person or both that are not submitted to Christ and his word. But if the two of you will submit to the lordship of Christ and his word, there is, there are, I will say this, if you can both submit to Christ, there is no marriage that cannot work. Every marriage can thrive if both are submitted to Christ Amen. and his word. Therefore, therefore, if you're single looking for a spouse, where do you need to find them? You need to find them in the church. You need to find a godly wife, a godly husband. Otherwise, they are not going to be a fit for you. They're not going to be a fit for you. Number four, the, the goodness of God is intimacy. We see this intimacy here between Adam and his wife. This, of course, is an emotional intimacy. 
Someone to share your deepest thoughts and and feelings with. Holding nothing back. We see a picture of this when it says the, the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. They were face to face. They, they, they were holding nothing back. They were hiding behind nothing. This closeness in, in, in fellowship. Of course, this also speaks to us of sexual intimacy. Verse 24, a husband shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. This one flesh union is the sexual union. And God, upon marriage has bestowed the blessing of sex. Sex is a blessing bestowed by God upon the marriage covenant. And sex is reserved solely for those who are in a marriage covenant, according to God's design. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes, even as Christians, our thinking is trained by the way the world thinks. And so we don't typically think of sex that way. We're trained by the fallen culture. And certainly our culture doesn't think of sex that way. Our culture thinks about sex as an activity that is separated from marriage. Something that people do for recreation and enjoyment. And that sometimes married people also engage in that activity from time to time. But sex is not just a recreational activity for anyone and everyone. That is a pagan thought. We read about cultures that live out that idea that we're under paganism. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans lived with that sexual ethic. And we are returning as we reject God and His Word... We are returning to ancient paganism. What we are experiencing right now in our culture is not progressive. It's not progress. It's going backwards. It's regressive. Back to paganism. Back to sex is meaningless. Sex is purposeless. It doesn't matter. But in fact, sex is is incredibly powerful because it is a spiritual act. Because in sex, you give yourself, body and soul, to your partner. And the idea that that can happen between two people and there not be any ties, any emotional uh, 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 connection without there being any lingering uh, 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 bond there is, is at war with God's very design. And it's part of why we see so many problems in our culture today. So much hurt, so much depression, so much anxiety is because we have separated sex from marriage. God's design for sex and sexuality, hear this, this is another dirty word, is that it requires responsibility. Sex requires responsibility. It requires two people to be committed and responsible with one another. I'm going to talk to the guys real quick. Ladies, you can just zone out for a minute. Guys, it's Father's Day. I'll do it this way. Guys, if you want to have sex with your wife, think about all the things you have to manage properly. Think about all of the things that you, you have to do. The the way you must speak to her, the way you must treat her, the the way you must love her and and care for her. If you want your wife to do as the Bible says, give herself to you, you must not just be a lazy bum that sits on the couch and eats potato chips in his underwear, belching his beer, at the Cowboys. That, that is not attractive to anybody. And you know that. You know that. We know that, men. If we ever want to go to bed with our wives, there's about 700,000 things that we must manage properly. 
And in this way, sex functions as a great disciplinarian for men that need discipline. God's design forces a man to take responsibility and to grow personally. Okay, ladies, you can tune back in. (laughs) And so in our culture of pornography, in our culture of free sex, sex without restraint, sex without any confines, sex without strings attached, it destroys God's design and it makes men irresponsible, undisciplined, and weak. And it removes any incentive for men to grow up and to be men. Joseph Boot, in his book, Mission of God, speaking of this, he says, in God's law, it channels human human sexual desire in a direction that creates healthy communities and societies, families and children. God's law is like the banks of a river that, that, that focus that power in a, in a particular direction. Sex is powerful. And God's way, God's law, channels that power in a direction that creates healthy families, healthy communities, healthy children, and healthy societies. And, and we live in a culture where where the banks are being overrun. It's just, it's just destruction. It's like New Orleans at Hurricane Katrina. It's a disaster in our culture today where there are not healthy families, where there are not healthy children, where there are not healthy marriages. The majority of, of children born in this nation are born out of wedlock, are born as the children of men who will not take responsibility. God's design focuses the power of sexuality in a direction that creates healthy families and communities. And so if you are having sex and you are not married according to God's law, or if you are married and you are committing adultery, 1 Corinthians tells us you are even sinning against your own body. And the the, the effects of that, the guilt that comes from that, that's where we live in in a culture that is so burdened with guilt and a guilty conscience. And so where do they turn to fix their guilty conscience? Everywhere and everything. Alcohol, drugs entertainment, more sex, the state to take care of them because there's no fathers to do anything. The, the problem is this problem of guilt. Now the world looks at it and he says, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no guilty conscience. But we know the truth. We, we know the truth that when we sin, if we are not in Christ, if we don't have our sins forgiven, we're under this crushing burden of guilt. Number five, the number five blessing of marriage that we see is where God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth is the blessing of children. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage or a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, our, our culture does not view children as a blessing. Our culture views children as a burden. In fact, our culture views children as such a burden that uh, basically at any point before birth, you can murder the child. But God calls children a blessing. And we as Christians need to not fall into the trap of talking about or thinking about children as a burden. Now, are children a lot of work? Yes. But work is not bad. The idea that work is bad is also pagan. Because God 
put Adam in the garden and told him to work it and to keep it before sin entered the world. So work and hard work is a good thing. And work and hard work actually produces blessing. And so if you will work on your children the way God designed them to be raised, and you will raise your children instead of letting the state do it, their indoctrination centers that we call public schools, or let Netflix do it, or let YouTube do it, what you will find is that your children actually grow up to be a blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Now, in so many different ways, we undermine that. We don't even realize what we're saying sometimes. I can't tell you how many times when Heather was pregnant, somebody would come up to me and say, you know what causes that, right? (laughs) I do. Do you? Like, yeah, hello? As, As if her being pregnant is a problem. As if I should... Stop doing that because why am I making all these kids? You know what causes that, right? Don't ever say something like that. Amen. So stupid. All the stupid stuff we say underneath it are, are satanic assumptions. Now, every marriage will not result in children. We know that. God is ultimately the one who is in control of that for his own purposes. But it is a good and godly desire to want and to have and to raise children in the fear of the Lord. And adoption is also a godly option that is a picture of the gospel itself. So, God's blessing in marriage. These five things. God's genius design in this and giving this gift to humanity. It focuses like a laser the intense power of sexuality in a positive direction, which makes a family and a home. And it domesticates men, all the ladies say amen. And it leads to the flourishing of women and children, their protection, providing for their protection and their provision. Women who need protection. Women are the weaker vessel. And I know that we want to live in a world that, that says that that's not true. But we can see it. I mean, even in sports, you take the guy that's number 1,000 when he competes against guys and you have him compete against women and he destroys them because he is stronger. And everyone looks at that and goes, huh, that's, that's weird. Hmm, he must just be a better swimmer. Hmm. God's word says it. And so it takes, for for men, it takes all of my energy and all of my passion and all of my desire and I'm to focus that towards my wife and towards my kids. Not just anywhere and everywhere. Instead of spreading it around in a million different directions that builds nothing. It goes nowhere, leading only to brokenness and abuse for women and fatherless children. And as a Christian man who fears God, we are called to love our wives and to treat her with gentleness and respect. And here's what I want you to see. When a culture and a society has God's design for marriage as the cultural norm, it produces flourishing within that society. Even for people who are not Christian. Even for people who are not Christian. Because if God's design for marriage, the Christian view of marriage, is what is the cultural norm, the standard for the culture... Even the non-Christian man in that culture must still conform himself to something of a somewhat respectable character in that culture. Or he's not getting any. Because the women in that culture understand, I'm not just giving myself to any man. And so it, it protects her. And so God's design for marriage, it even lifts 
the cultures where there are unbelievers in them, they are still blessed by this. Because the Christian sexual ethic forces men into monogamy. Because in the Christian sexual ethic, women hold the power. Think about this. In the Christian sexual ethic, women hold the power. In the pagan sexual ethic, men hold the power. Why do they hold the power? Because they're stronger. Because they're stronger. Because they can impose their will on the weaker vessel. You see, the sexual revolution did not empower women. They already had the power in marriage. The sexual revolution tricked women into thinking they were being liberated while it was actually men who were being set free. Men were being set free from the expectation for sexual restraint and for monogamy. And that is why there's so much brokenness in our culture today. What is going on? Did the world just end and everyone's getting texted about it? I don't know. The reason there's so much brokenness in our culture today is because we have declared war on God and we are rebelling against God's good design. And as it turns out, after 70 years of feminism, that most women would prefer to have children who are a blessing over having a thriving career, which substitutes, it's just so dumb. Your husband's an oppressor. You know, he's oppressing you. You're going to be liberated from having to have a husband. You can go out and, 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 and make your own way in the world. You can go out and go get your own job and work for another man and be his secretary and, and work to make him rich and wealthy. It's just so stupid. When a husband and a wife are working together to build something together, something that will live and outlast them, setting up in their home an expression of the kingdom of God. And as it turns out, I know this is shocking, there's only one way to have children. Ladies, there's only one way to have children, and that's with a man. And so what kind of man do you want? A selfish, womanizing loser or a man who fears God and is submitted to him and his word? We live in a culture that has liberated men from the confines of the word of God and tricked women into believing they were the ones being liberated. And now the majority of the children that are born are fatherless. And women now have to look to the state to take care of them. Women who are married to the state. What an awful idea. Now, I know that the picture, I've mentioned this in conclusion today. I mentioned that this picture in Genesis 1 and 2 are idealistic because it is before sin entered the world. And in the world today, we see that there is a lot of brokenness. And I understand that. There's a lot of ways for a marriage to be broken. There's a lot of ways for a marriage to fail. I understand that there is abuse in marriage. But the good news of the gospel is that through Christ, God is remaking the world. That through Christ, what has been broken is being healed. And so when we are in a marriage and when we are in Christ and we submit both of us to Christ and his word, the husband and the wife can set up an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in their home where the spirit of God, the fruit of the spirit are poured out Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Christian marriage can be a slice of heaven here on earth where both husband and wife submit to God and his word. Now as a husband, I have sins that I must confess and repent of. And wives, you have sins that you must confess and repent of. But the truth is that because Christ has forgiven us, we can now forgive one another. Amen. 
Because Christ has forgiven us, the burden of guilt has been removed. The burden that we carry of guilt and guilty consciences when we come to Christ and we confess our sins and we repent of our sins, he pours out his spirit and his blessing upon us. And so I have sins that I must repent of. Wives, you have sins that you must repent of and confess. And when we do, we find forgiveness in Christ. And because Christ has forgiven us, we are called to forgive one another. So it's not that there will ever, you know, if you have a Christian marriage, it's not that there will never be sin. It's not that there will never be arguments. It's not that there will never be disagreements. But what we have is an ultimate standard that we're both under, an ultimate authority that we're both under. And when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a place that we can go to have our sins forgiven and have our, and have our hearts sprinkled clean and our conscience is relieved. And so because I am forgiven in Christ, I can forgive my wife. Because you are forgiven in Christ, you can forgive your spouse. And just because there are ways in which marriages can go wrong, it doesn't mean that we give up on marriage. What we say is, no, that was a, that, that was a bad marriage. It's not the institution that's the problem. It's sinful humanity that's the problem. And there is a standard against which every marriage is judged. There's a standard against which every husband and every wife is judged. And it's the standard of the word of God. And when both husband and wife will submit themselves to God's word in faith and in repentance and obedience... When we live under God's rule, we also live under God's blessing. And he pours out the fruit of his spirit in our homes. If you want to have more love in your marriage, you need more God in your marriage. If you want to have more peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control in your marriage, you need more God and his word in your marriage. And when we do that, when we submit to God's rule... We live in God's blessing. And let me tell you, this is something the world cannot copy or duplicate. Though they may try, though they may try to tell us that, <laughs> that what is between a man and a man is just as good as this, let me tell you, it is a lie. Amen. Though they might try and tell us and confuse us and say, no, you know, a, a woman and a woman are... You know, then they want to start tacking more people into it, and there's like eight people in this thing. Listen, God's design is so good. God's design is so beautiful. God's design is so perfect. Though we are imperfect, his design is perfect. And the more we conform ourselves in the power of the Spirit to his word and to his design, the more we experience his blessing in our lives. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. We're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. This is a place where we come and we confess our sin and receive forgiveness. The other day, I was coloring with my youngest daughter, Charity. She's five years old. She was coloring this picture in a coloring book of Minnie Mouse. And she's five, and so we had her in kindergarten this year. She graduated from kindergarten. So proud of her. And in kindergarten, one of the very important lessons that she learned this year is she learned to color in the lines. And so I was sitting there when we were coloring this picture and I was just marveling at how she picked these different colors and she just drew this beautiful picture, colored this beautiful picture of Minnie Mouse. And there was all of this variety and some of it was a little spooky and scary, their color choices, but... Overall, it was, it, was, it was nice. And she gave it to me, and I said, oh, wow, that's nice. And, and I could tell what it was. 
It made sense. The next day we went out to dinner and we were trying to keep her entertained and occupied and um, keep her from, you know, just going and having dinner with everybody else at the restaurant and joining every other table. We didn't have much and I had a, a piece of notebook paper and I had a pen and so I handed it to her. I said, draw me a picture, color me a picture. And she took that pen and those couple colors of pen that I had and that piece of notebook paper. And she drew the best picture that she could. I wish I would have brought it for you this morning. It, it was just a bunch of scribble scrabble. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. it. It was the best that she could, but she's five. And it, it, it was nothing. It, it was just a whole big jumbled mess. She handed it to me and I said, wow, thank you, this is so beautiful. And I compared what she drew on her own to what she colored when she had some boundaries, when she had an image that she was aiming for. The, the one was intelligible, the one was actually a picture and the other was just scrambled mess. We live in a culture that has chosen with marriage and sexuality to throw off all boundaries, to throw off God's design, God's image. And what we have is simply a jumbled mess of scrambled eggs. We, we don't have a clear picture of what a family is. We don't have a clear picture of what the image of God is. But God gave us a picture and God gave us a good picture and yes, within those confines of marriage, we can take our different colors and we can shade them in with our different personalities and our different gift sets. And, and no, no two marriages are going to be the same. There's going to be a huge swath of variety. Some people will have kids. Some people will not. Some people will adopt. Some people will have one child. Some people will have 10 children. It's going to be very diverse, but it's going to paint the same picture of the image of God. But when we throw off all boundaries, we are like children and we just make a mess of things. And that is what we do when we throw off the confines of the word of God. We just make a mess. And so I know that there are some here today who you would look at your life and the way that you have lived your life and you would say, I have done that. I have thrown off the confines of God's word I have made a mess of things. But what I want you to know is that truly all of us here today, in one way or another, have done the exact same thing. All of us, the Bible says, have in one way or another rejected and rebelled against God's word. That's called sin. We've all transgressed God's law. Sin produces brokenness in our lives. But God, because he loves us, sent his son Jesus to pay the price and the penalty for sin, which is death. That on the cross, Jesus died for our sin. On the cross, Jesus took our brokenness and had it laid upon him. Jesus took our death upon him on the cross so that those of us who would have faith in Christ could receive healing, could receive the forgiveness of sin, could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I don't stand up here before you and preach to you the word of God this morning because I am sinless. I can stand and preach to you today because I am forgiven. And I want you to experience the forgiveness that only comes through faith in Christ. And so if you are here today, you say, I've made a mess of things. I want you to know you are in the right place today. This is the place for you because it is at the cross where we take our mess and we receive God's blessing. We receive God's love. We receive God's forgiveness. We receive the healing that only he can give. So I invite you to stand with me today. As we come to the table, as we come to take the, the bread and the juice, which represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, as we take them, what we are saying is...
Jesus, I put my faith in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I repent of my sins and, and I trust in your work of redemption on the cross. By taking that, we are proclaiming that gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good design that you have given us in marriage. Lord, though at times it may seem confining, we can see that it paints for us a beautiful picture. The picture marriage paints for us is the picture of the gospel, of your son Jesus dying to redeem us, his bride, and to take, him, take us to himself as a holy and spotless people. Lord Jesus, you took responsibility for us. You took upon yourself our sin and shame so that we could be clothed, radiant with your righteousness. We thank you for the work of the gospel. We thank you for your broken body and shed blood. As we come to the table today, we come in faith, trusting in your work for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ's name we pray, amen.